You're listening to The Turing Podcast, a production of the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Turing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ed Calstry, and I'm here with B. Costa-Gomez. Hi, B. Hi, Ed. How are you today? I'm doing good. We're still in partial lockdown. It's 27th of May we're recording this episode how are you how are you doing up in Manchester the weather is so nice I am so confused as to why is it such a nice weather but I'm enjoying it just going to the balcony and uh, probably will get sunburned it seems that the weather's been unseasonably good throughout lockdown I'm not sure why that is (laughs) (laughs) I think I think it was on purpose the 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 weather decided to, to just make us all feel just to troll us yeah yes exactly that, that bit works, gigantic yeah. nature troll on us that's what's happening <laughs> <laughs> um, so B we've got um an interesting guest today uh Eric Dow I'll introduce him in a moment um but before we do that um we've got a couple of fun facts and my my facts today are very relevant to the uh today's episode they are bridge-related facts. Would you like to hear them? Oh my God, you have bridge-related facts. Yes, I would. Well, in fact, I'm going to ask you them as questions to see if you get the answer right. So here we go. Oh God, I'm <laughs> not prepared for this. I, I did not agree with this, with being quizzed. But, but You're going to be really embarrassed if your answer is way out. But here we go. Um, <laughs> the world's longest bridge is the Danyang Kunshan Bridge, Grand Bridge in China which is part of the Beijing-Shanghai high-speed high speed railway. Can you guess how long it is in kilometres? Um, no, I, I have no <laughs> idea. It's 165 kilometres. Oh my God, I would have been way off. I was going to say 10, but that's like so much more. <laughs> <laughs> One order of magnitude okay. out. Um, yeah, it's a little bit uh, longer than the... The bridge we'll be discussing today with uh, with Eric. slightly longer <laughs> and a relate re- slightly longer yeah related question uh, the bridge with the tallest structural height is the Malau viaduct in France can you guess how tall that is oh god no uh, <laughs> I can't Go on, guess have it. Go at this one <laughs> okay okay so I guess it's it's going to be like I, I just. No, I I don't want to do this because I <laughs> more than I don't know a hundred meters. Is that it? You're in the you're in the right ballpark, but uh, it's a it's a fair bit taller than that. It's three hundred and thirty six meters. Okay, it's, it's more tall. than a hundred meters, so I'm technically correct. So you got it right. Well done, <laughs> correct. <laughs> so those um, are my I, fun facts slash fun bridge related questions. <laughs> I I don't have a bridge. Uh, related fact to you, but I can tell you a fact that I learned a couple of days ago. Um, uh, but I, did you know that there are more plastic flamingos in the world than actual flamingos? More plastic flamingos than actual flamingos. And it, who's yes. measured that exactly? Who's found that? I, I have no idea, but it's, this, uh, it's just imagine that the flamingos are Is this one of those facts over. like you, you, you swallow eight spiders a night? So is that kind of fact? <laughs> I don't know. I, I I hope I hope not. But I'm just imagining there's like an army of real flamingos, very upset that there are more plastic flamingos than actual flamingos. 
So I know that there's more Lego people than real people in the world. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's a good one though. That's a yeah. Is it? Is it, did they count all of the Lego people in the world? Yeah. No, that's another one. How how did they count that? Who's counted that? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> so, someone's job is to count that. <laughs> just, gone around, just think yeah. about it. Also, Done someone's big... job is to test chocolate. That was my dream job as a kid. So just just that. Someone's got that job. Yeah. Someone's got the job to count flamingos. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but tell me, tell me, tell us more about uh, who are we going to talk to today? Yes, let's let, let's do that. Um, today we're talking with Dr. Eric Daub, a principal research data scientist at the Alan Turing Institute, whose prior research has involved using computer simulations to understand the complex dynamics of earthquakes and material failure. But today we're talking to him about his involvement in measuring, monitoring and analysing the performance of the world's largest 3D printed metal structure, a 12 metre long stainless steel bridge, which will be crossing one of Amsterdam's canals. Although as we found out, it's not currently crossing the canal. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'll kick off by just asking you a question about this bridge then. So this pre 3D printed bridge, it has an accompanying software model that's been called a digital twin. Well, let's start with that actually. So what's a digital twin? What's the motivation behind their development? Uh, yeah, so uh, digital twins are a big uh, push within the Turing in terms of a general idea about how to understand you know, the built world around us. I think you know, it also has applications beyond engineering, but for the bridge, this is kind of its flagship implementation in that we have a real physical structure and then we have a computational digital model of that and we'd like to learn about the real thing using the computational model and then we'd like to use data from the real structure to improve our model so that we can you know better understand how to construct these things and to accurately learn things about uncertainties in our world so the uh yeah go ahead so these are all about improving real-world engineering things by having super accurate computer models. But essentially, the, the key sort of novel component compared to a usual computer model is that it's getting input data from the actual structure. Yeah, so the feedback is a really important part of this because in traditional engineering practice, you would run your model to make some design specification and then build your bridge and then not really ask yourself if your model was any good. Like just because the bridge doesn't fall down doesn't mean that you did a good job engineering it. You could have over-engineered it, you could have wasted money, you could have you know, done something completely wrong and just because the bridge doesn't fall down doesn't mean you did a good job because you don't actually have data that confirms that what your model said should happen is actually what happened. So this is part of an effort to actually bring a rigorous data intensive approach to engineering so that you can actually in real time hopefully over you know i think that's that is one of the goals of this bridge project long term is to actually try and do this on real time or at least sort of like a daily update like you have some sensor information from the bridge you feed that into your model you run some kind of update and you say ah okay like that's exactly what i expected it to do given that i think my model's really good um 
or you know, there's a problem here, I think I can improve my model in this way, or that's a really, or you can even feedback the other way and say that's a really anomalous occurrence uh, based on everything we've seen before that should tell me that I should be worried about the structure. There's something that's not performing the way that you like. Um, so I think part of that really is the feedback is actually getting real data in like in real structures to tell us if engineers are doing a good job uh, in their models or not. How sort of new of an idea is this? Obviously we're, we're promoting it and doing projects involving it at the Turing, but how widely adopted is it as a practice already? Um, so just for a scale, um, we have a hundred sensors, uh, give or take on this bridge recording continuously at roughly a hundred Hertz. Um, that if you, so my background in earthquakes, uh, that's a place where there's a lot of continuous monitoring going on. Uh, a seismic network of a hundred would be gigantic. Uh, usually we might be lucky if we have 20 or even, you know, five sensors in a particular place to pack that all into a 12 meter structure gives you some really high fidelity information that wouldn't hadn't been available before just because there wasn't the uh, the bandwidth to sort of transport that you need like you know cloud computing infrastructure right. Right. so there's some server physically located at the bridge that's continuously monitoring all these sensors taking that data collecting it sending it to the cloud so and then in your in the cloud you might have uh, some you know some virtual machine somewhere that's where that data is stored. Then you bring your model into that and you do some computations and you try and actually uh, dictate you know, what's going on with the bridge. Doing that in that sort of time scale is not really something that's been feasible before or at that see, level right. of the number yeah. of sensors. So both the real timeness and the density of sensors are, are really novel on this. Like the, um, you know, I used to live in Memphis, Tennessee and there's a bridge spanning uh, the Mississippi River there, and that has three sensors on it. And that's you know, a really important physical asset. Um, and that's a real pain uh, to sort of monitor and update. Uh, the seismologists I work with were actually in charge of that because it has so much parallels with seismic monitoring rather than actual engineering. So, you know, engineers are much more, go stick a sensor on something, wait a few hours, and then take it off. Not doing this continuous approach. You know, that's sort of the new right. thing that we're trying to incorporate in this project. It makes sense that with your background in studying earthquakes, that would, that, that would be a similar kind of approach you, you're taking in this case. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, my, my PhD was in you know, computational physics, but I was very interested in how to apply numerical models to really complicated systems. And you know, the bridge is a great example of that. There's little pieces of that you know, that are funny shapes. And so you need a really good a uh, computational model to be able to try and predict things on that, uh, much more so than kind of traditional engineering approaches where you kind of put a few sensors on there or you jump on it and and that's that. You know, we're trying to right. do something yeah. much more sophisticated with like laser scans. We have really clear uh, picture of what the shape of the structure is like. We've tested these uh, materials at lots of different scales from like little, you know, two how centimeter. Does the, how does the laser scan work? Um, so the laser scan, basically you place your laser and it uses um, the laser, it shines light off of that and measures the amount of time that it takes the light to go back and forth from oh, your sorry. position. And so it can actually get a very detailed map of the height of the surface over sort of by doing a, a scan. I'm 
drawing in the air what you know sort of <laughs> laser scan would be doing um but so these is, are the kinds of like so the laser scanning is the kind of sensor that's placed or one of the kinds of sensors that placed on the on this bridge across the amsterdam canal uh so there's kind of two different scales of measurements that we're doing so one is sort of in controlled environments uh, so these are things like uh laser scan to get a clear detailed uh picture of what the actual structure looks like. Uh, then there's like control tests in the lab where we put certain demands on it. We say we get you know 20 people to stand on the bridge and have them jump up and down and record those. Um, and so that's kind of like controlled tests. But in the real bridge, we're going to have completely uncontrolled environment. It's just going to be responding to people walking on there. So we're going to have several types of sensors, um, including accelerometers that measure you know small vibrations, so explain. Meters. So sorry, Eric. Just explain <laughs> yeah. there. When you say the real bridge, so what do you mean there? What? Ah, yes. Be... <laughs> <laughs> um, so the bridge is real right now, but it's currently not installed in Amsterdam, and so we're going through the final uh, engineering testing to ensure that the structure is safe. Uh, I think because really? there's no structure like this in the world, uh, we're being fairly conservative in our. Uh, in our testing to be sure that we're confident in the safety of this structure. Um, so that's sort of like one extreme. But as it has you, I, I know that there was a, a miniature version of it, right? So is that the only one that's sort of been plugged into the digital twin, as it were, so far? Uh, yes and no. So we do have sensors from the sensor recordings from the the 12 meter version of the bridge. There's a two meter version of the bridge that the Turing uh, has. Uh, and in our initial testing, we we worked out some hardware uh, and software uh, components to, uh, to detect when people were on the bridge, how they were moving uh, based on the, uh, the sensor readouts. And that was meant to be uh, you know, sort of a, a pilot project for this to understand some of the challenges in you know, detecting what people were doing on the bridge. Um, but that's, that bridge only had uh, three, uh, three motion sensors on it, plus uh, four sensors measuring the weight on the bridge, uh, while the, uh, the, the 12-meter version is going to have many, many more uh, sensors that measure the vibrations of people walking on the bridge. Why Amsterdam, though? Is there any reasoning uh, as to where the real bridge is going to be? Uh, so the uh, company that uh, is printed the bridge is called MX3D, and they're based in Amsterdam. Uh, so I think that was a big part of motivation was just that they wanted to be, you know, tied to their community. Um, they thought they really think of this this bridge as a living laboratory for learning about, you know, engineering, about new materials, about how people socially respond to. Uh, you know, new types of construction, new types of, you know, of, you know, things being digital that we didn't, you know, internet of things, things that we didn't think of as being digital before now, all of a sudden having, you know, some, some digital component to it. Right, um, right, yeah. It's like, I guess, I guess in the sense it's, um, yeah, you said the internet of things, that, that's sort of a, a buzz phrase as it were. Yeah. And then the other, the other one that came to mind was smart city. Mm -hmm. And I guess, yeah, digital twins fits quite nicely. <laughs> into oh yeah, that. No, absolutely. <laughs> like a group of buzz phrases as well. Um, you, you kind of already answered uh, another question I had, but um, so when this project was initially being thought up, was the main aim to be 
a proof of concept for the idea of digital twins or is it was it more focused on the novel material of the 3d printed bridge which was the main thing you wanted to test out or, or is it both uh definitely both i think that um part of the motivation was this being a new material that people didn't understand as well i think gives rise to the, the desire to you know, really meticulously instrument and test out how this structure is performing. Um, and I also think that kind of the, that what's neat about the 3D printing is it gives you freedom of design that you didn't have uh, before. So you know, there's only certain shapes that it's easy for a machine to roll steel into. Well, if you're just printing it one layer at a time, you can have, and if you See the bridge, it's kind of got these swooping, curvy uh, structure to it that is not like, you know, what you would think of being a traditional bridge. Um, and so because of the new material, that kind of motivates you know, that desire to, uh, to want to really instrument it really well and show the potential of both the, uh, the printing material as well as the technology of how these type, you know, sensing structures can really transform engineering practice. Cool. Um, well, I was wondering as well what you think the future holds for this kind of uh, 3D printed steel structure. From what you've seen, I know I guess this this is the company that's that's doing this part, creating the bridge. But mm-hmm. and I suppose it's hard to know until it's you know it's been deployed and you, we've done lots of uh, interesting science on on mm-hmm. the the software equivalent, the digital twin. But from what you've seen so far, what what do you think the future holds for, um, you know, 3D printing of larger structures or digital twins of larger structures? Uh, So certainly from 3D printing, uh, it's fascinating in that right now it's not uh, cheaper than traditional manufacturing. But we've seen for like plastics and other composite and other materials like that, digital printing has, has revolutionized design. You can prototype things much more quickly. Uh, than you could ever before. And it really you know, unlocks a lot of potential in creating new things that, that we couldn't have done before, both in terms of making them relatively inexpensive uh, to manufacture, uh, but also easy to prototype and refine designs to really make them robust um, and, and strong. And I think that's that really resonates with the engineering side of this, is that the ability to kind of do this quickly and understand in great detail what's going on with the structure will make you know engineering both you know, more efficient in terms of not costing as much but also make it safer because we'll actually have robust data and be able to do iterative approaches uh, and actually have the data confirm that what we're doing is you know scientifically valid and and safe yeah and, and to, to genuinely improve on the traditional approaches to yeah, yeah things yeah. like bridge construction or mm-hmm. other engineering projects I, I, I can imagine that the engineer's toolkit of the future looks something like they have like a augmented reality, um, you know, cityscape, and then they can put their their design on top of that. And then using that, then go and actually design the real thing, thinking about the engineering. And, and then they'll go and, and put it in the actual space and it will fit exactly that sort of thing. That's what yeah. Sunlight teaches us. Like right now, that's what all of the Iron Man makes his suits like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, see, it looks, the movies make it look easy, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> maybe not quite so easy in real life. 
Well, and I also think, Ed, you, you touched on something fascinating there and that, you know, if we do have digital representations of these structures, we can also model things like how people interact with them. I think that's part of the smart city uh, picture is, you know, knowing how people move around. If we change something about our environment, put this fancy new bridge somewhere, is that going to change foot traffic in the area? You know, that's going to impact uh, both you know, the need for how, to, how we design these things engineering-wise to you know, lay out of cities, to economic effects, you know, more foot traffic might you know, affect local businesses. Um, you know, there's a lot of potential for having you know, robust modeling approaches where we can actually simulate how changing something affects this larger environment rather than just kind of doing this in isolation and then we'll plop it down hoping that it works and learning painful lessons and expensive lessons if they don't work the way we intended them to. Well, that, that, that leads me to ask an interesting question, which I guess is historically thinking of, I guess, bridges in particular, how have we learned those lessons? Have we learned them painfully? Uh, often we learn them painfully, but I, as I said earlier, um, I think we often, we've, there's lessons that we should have learned, but haven't because we don't have any data to, tell us that we're doing things wrong. Right, right. Like usually, yeah. you know, engineering practice is based on this idea that I'm, I take my structure and I think it will withstand a certain range of, of weight being applied to it. And then there's some reality in which there's a certain range of weights that will in practice be applied to it. Like if, you know, there's a football match and right out right nearby and, you know, tons of of local fans get let out of the, the stadium and go want to drink in the bars, they're going to all cross this bridge. You know, that might, if if we, we know something about, you know, that might be uh, an event that the, uh, the designer thought of as a potential outlier, but it turns out to be something that's actually experienced with fairly regular occurrences, then you know, we want to be able to record that and, and you know, reflect that in our, in our practice, in our, engineering approach, where we actually know that if we say the bridge should respond in this way to this types of loads, and here are the actual loads that have been placed on it, are they overlapping the way that we thought they would? And you know, that's still an open question because no one's ever recorded continuously all the loads ever applied to a bridge. Um, so right, this will be the right. first to try and do that. Well, I get I, so as you said, there have been attempts in the past to apply sensors to bridges but um presumably it there's more than just the fact of placing more sensors in this case right is there something because the the bridge has been built with this um goal in mind um there, I mean, presumably the sensors are built in rather than placed on them uh, right? no, they're, no they're actually placed on it uh, there's a fair amount of engineering work uh, that's gone into designing the system to make sure it's robust. Um, it's going to be out in, in the weather in Amsterdam. Uh, so, you know, if it rains or snows, you know, this needs to be weatherproof. Um, so that's another challenge. Uh, another thing that part of the reason this, this bridge is so heavily uh, specced in terms of its sensor density is we'd like to do questions. What can, what kind of questions can you answer with different numbers of sensors? If you, if you only have three sensors to put on a bridge, where is the best place to put them? If you have, you know, what, what, what scientific questions can you answer with 100 sensors that you couldn't answer with 10 sensors? Are there some pieces of infrastructure where we want to make that investment to put in really dense sensors and others where we're 
except we were happy with the information we'd get from just having a few. I think those are a lot of the questions um, that having this density of sensors, which doesn't exist anywhere else, can actually answer and you know, make future efforts to do this more cost-effective as well as robust. Cool. Um, so, Eric, one thing I'm, uh, I'm not totally clear on is that um, this is obviously a big uh, project with our partners in the company. What did you say the name of the company was? Uh, MX- MX3D, yeah. MX3D, right. Um, so in terms of your, your personal involvement, um, what was your role in the project? Um, and how, if at all, did your background in material science help you with that? Uh, so I've been in charge of a few things within the Turing. Uh, so one is I've I've kind of been a, a, a project lead um, in the in the sense that there's been a lot of sort of important questions to be answered, like you know getting ethics approval for recording uh, sensor data on real people. We have to go through ethics approval and make sure that we're GDPR compliant. Uh, so I was involved in a lot of the discussions on that. Uh, then there's the technical questions of how do we get the data from the bridge into the cloud where we're going to want to run our computations? Uh, so that's another area that I've, I've, uh, I've been involved. Um, and our team at, at the Turing has been working with Autodesk Research uh, to design software systems that are going to allow the researchers to access uh, this, uh, this data. Uh, so those I mostly had a, kind of a, a leadership role on that. And the technical side... Uh, what I've been doing is writing some of the software that actually implements mathematically uh, what the digital twin is doing. So it's a computational, you know, physics-based model of uh, how to incorporate sensor data uh, with the, the finite element method. So the finite element method is a common approach that engineers use um, to solve problems like if you apply loads to structures, how do they bend and deform? Uh, but there's surprisingly poor knowledge on how to incorporate known sensor data into those types of models. Usually we do it by trial and error. We say, okay, if I assume that there's this kind of weight on the bridge, I'm gonna do a solve of my model. It says the bridge should move like this, compare it with some sensor, sort of look at it, twiddle some knob in an unpredictable way on your simulation and try it again and hope that you cover enough of the uh, possible uh, spaces of what could have happened that you get a reasonable idea of what actually happened. Uh, this is actually a much more sophisticated technique where you simultaneously uh, combine the real data uh, with a physics model and say, you know, given the uncertainties involved in everything, so given the uncertainties in my sensor data, given what I know well about my computational model, what I don't know very well about my computational model, and act, faithfully reflect all those uncertainties, what you'd like it to do is say, you know, here's a really good data point. It's going to tell me exactly what's going on right there. Then there's another sensor some distance away. That's also really good. What happens in between? Um, you know, classic approach would just be to interpolate, just kind of say, well, it's going to be some smooth transition from one to the other, but there's actually some physics involved in that. We know how materials, given how we displace them in two different places, what they should look like in between. And so this model actually incorporates that in a physically realistic way, rather than just kind of, you know, fitting some, some, some curve between those two points, um, which would be what, you know, sort of traditional approaches would, would try and do in that circumstance. 
I guess that would, those traditional approaches wouldn't be sort of accounting for the subtleties in the um, the material itself or mm -hmm. the shape, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, yeah, things like that. So yeah, so a lot of my work, which is real based on my background in computational science, is coming up with efficient ways to uh, to do this because these these finite element models are often solved on on many uh, computer cores on 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 computing clusters, um, and to do this uh, this model update correctly, you have to solve the model uh, for each one time for each sensor date sensor point that you have to kind of figure out if I. What do you I, mean exactly by solve the solve the model in this case? Um, so so true. So basically, the, the way these these models work is you assume that there is some force applied to the structure, and then you mm -hmm. solve the model to determine how it should bend in response to that. Uh, you know the weight that's added to the to the bridge, and so if you, um, but and you know, that you have to specify exactly what that does. And if you have specific points where you've measured that, you'd like to say, you know, if I, can, if I fix this, fix the answer to be exactly what I know the sensor to be, how much does that change what the solution looks like in other right, places? Right. And so that way you can accurately say how you can account for the uncertainties in all of the pieces of the model. You sort of say, okay, if I know this, what does that tell me about the model? If I know this, what does it tell me about the model? And then add all those up in a mathematically consistent way uh, is what we're doing in this case. Can you tell us what's the biggest advantage of the fact that this is a 3D printed structure rather than the normally built um, bridges? Uh, so certainly one thing that the materials uh, researchers have found is that so uh, printing, 3D printing works in that you build the material up one layer at a time. Uh, so there is uh, sort of a texture to it and a scent, it knows sort of there's different directions that respond differently uh, to forces. So if you pull on it in one direction versus the other, uh, the material actually responds in a very different way. Uh, so one potential benefit of this is it seems to be much sturdier in one direction than the other. And so if you have a reasonable engineering understanding of where the structure needs to be strong, you can set up your... Uh, set up your material so that the strong directions sort of align where you need them the most. And if there are certain ways that the structure doesn't react, you know, and bend under, under real, you know, people standing on it, then you can, you know, take advantage of the fact that this printed steel is stronger in some ways than traditional steel, but weaker in others and, you know, get the benefits um, of that. So you know, that's one important difference that we've noticed uh, based on the materials tests is that you know, there's definitely differences between printed steel and traditionally cast steel. And so we'd like to ensure that that, that, that benefit you know, is actually realized cleverly in the engineering design. Maybe it's too early to tell, but do you think that there are any disadvantages of printed steel versus traditionally uh, made steel? Uh, for the moment, it's still more expensive to to print things. Right. I think there's hope that that cost will come down, much like it has for you know, plastic printing um, and other other. Uh, it's called additive manufacturing. You sort of add up one layer at a time to build something. Uh, so that has has gotten very inexpensive for uh, for plastics. And so I think the hope is that if it if similar improvements in the yeah. cost can be made, then they realize some of these benefits. 
My, that being said, I, I, I'm imagining some of the slightly dystopian scenarios associated with easily printable steel structures. <laughs> and I, I know it's already possible to to print like a plastic gun, right? And the, the schematics are online. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, we'll, maybe perhaps we'll all be printing AK-47s in, in the shed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not scary at all. Or I just like to imagine a gigantic um, a 3D printer just printing buildings and uh, and, and just like yeah. around town, just, just printing stuff. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. that sounds like a better scenario. Yeah, definitely. That's right. We'll, we'll move we'll move from the uh, the London skyline being defined by construction cranes to being defined by robotic arms printing. Uh, Just like yeah. these gigantic yeah. going, yeah. Building up, nice. building up, uh, building up, building uh, up buildings in the city uh, one 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 floor at a time. <laughs> it will be really interesting to see the first major building that's done in this way. I wonder which country will do it first. Probably not the UK. This, here, here we have it, guys. This is it. Just throwing the challenge out there for all the countries in the world. If you're if you're listening and you're a budding engineer, then get on it. <laughs> um, no, that sounds really cool. Um, so, so yes, thanks for coming on the podcast, Eric, and telling us all about um, this really cool bridge project. Um, I, I've got a couple of other other questions. I think we have to resolve. So. It, it's not in operation yet, but it should have been, right? So why why is the bridge not in Amsterdam yet? Uh, so there's a, several reasons for that. Um, so first is that it's been very difficult. Uh, we'd have to, we're working with the city of Amsterdam to get the permit approving that. Uh, that's so, actually been a surprisingly challenging process. I think partly because of the newness of everything like you know they yeah they there were there were a lot of discussions like what standard do they want us to provide data uh, on in order to to sort of show the the safety of, of the uh of the material and the structure um you know there was a lot of back and forth there were we had you know project calls every few weeks and it was kind of this this, this cloud hanging over the project, are we going to get this permit? Are right, they right. going to make us reinforce it? And that kind of kills the, the beauty and the design and the, the newness of the 3D printed material to have some conventionally See, yeah. constructed reinforcements added to it at the last minute. Uh, but uh, the permit has finally been approved. Um, the problem then is uh, in order to get the actual uh, digital monitoring in place. Um, you know, we need to have computer servers there that need a place that they have enough power where they're sheltered out of the elements. Even if we've ruggedized uh, the, you know, the sensors on the bridge, there still has to be a, you know, a sensitive computer server uh, physically located at the bridge. Uh, so we needed right. to get new electrical outlets put in for that. Uh, then the uh, the COVID uh, situation uh, slowed yeah. down. <laughs> the, the Haven't need. heard of it. Yeah, yeah that's uh, <laughs> that's definitely uh, part of of this. Um, as well as you know, this is something that's never been done before. And oftentimes, you find that when you have something really ambitious, and even when you give yourself several years to kind of get all the pieces uh, together. There are still some challenges that were uh, unanticipated along the way. Uh, so we certainly run into a few of those, but um, we sort of the project has progressed, and I think at this point they're hoping uh, to have it in place in the summer. And I think 
ideally, uh, what we'd like is if we can get it in place before kind of lockdowns are eased to the point that people are really out and about in the same way that they were uh, before, you know, uh, you know, a lot of European countries locked down uh, for coronavirus is we can actually see how the bridge is with and without uh, you know, people using it in different levels. And we can see sort of in real time how, how this approach can give us more information and more data on how the bridge responds to different uh, environmental conditions, different populations you know, using it, different social occur occurrences. You know, football matches. It's in the red light district in Amsterdam, so there certainly be people out and about at, at bars and, and cafes. Yeah. And <laughs> well, on, the, on that note, you, you you've got you come right to my bonus question, which was <laughs> you've mentioned it's in the red light district, or it will be in the red light district. What effect, if any, do you expect uh, its positioning there to have relative to if it were positioned across another canal in another part of Amsterdam? Um, I think partly, you know, it's 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 a very tourist area because of that. So I think that will give the project a bit more visibility. Um, you know, because of GDPR requirements, we have to put a sign on the bridge telling people that they are are being monitored. Um, you know. right. <laughs> um, so I mean, you know, we they're not being identified in any way, right? It's just their their foot, <laughs> how much they weigh, I guess. Well, it's so, so that. Go ahead, B. I was going to say, that's like, you're going to know how much they weigh. You're going to know if they are <laughs> keeping the social distance, which is now a thing that can be. Right, right, could be. <laughs> well, so actually, so, so you, the fact that, you know, we know how much people weigh is, is actually a very interesting question because uh, with the, the small scale version of the bridge uh, that, you know, we do have working and monitoring people. The first time that we ever deployed that, uh, we did have uh, on our, our computer display showing off you know the sensor readings and how it was detecting people on the bridge uh it was we were displaying people's weight in kilograms and that actually was a very personal thing to be showing in front of an audience and people were actually quite reluctant to walk on the bridge because of that and so when we changed the the output instead of being in kilograms which is a very personal number to people to being uh you know kilonewtons which is sort of a bit more removed to people's everyday experience, they just saw that as kind of a cool feature rather than, you know, telling something, you know, learning something intrinsic about it. So I think that's an important consideration with these Internet of Things type devices is that we use it in a way that's constructive for, you know, engineering purposes and knowing how structures are used, but don't use it in a way that we're trying to, you know, ethically learn things about yeah. people um, like that. You don't want to cause any existential crisis at people walking past. That would be just right. the worst. <laughs> yeah, it certainly would defeat the purpose of uh, monitoring this to know how how the uh, how the structure is responding and how people are using it, and you know, learning about you know how yeah, how this new structure is going to impact how they use it. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Eric. Right, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I think I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very okay, much. Okay, yeah, it's a Thank pleasure you. to be here. Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. To learn more about the work going on at the Alan Turing Institute, visit our website at turing.ac.uk. To get in touch with the podcast team, if you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at turing.ac.uk. Music for this episode was provided by Jamin Sun. You can listen to his latest releases at jaminsun.bandcamp.com.
The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Calstry, Tarek Allen, Ben Walden, Effie Dennis, and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute.